The devil hates you. And he does not want you to read your Bible. The devil hates you. He hates your guts. He can't stand you. And when you pick up the Bible to read it or to meditate upon it or to memorize it or you hear sermons from God's word, the devil is angry. He's livid. When you open up the Bible, the devil punches walls. He's so angry. He pounds his fist on tables because he does not want you to read God's word. Today, we're going to be reminded once again of something that we have seen repeatedly through our time in 1 Kings, and it's something that we need to be reminded of often, and it's this. We desperately need God's word, and we can seriously mess up our lives if we ignore it. What we're going to see today is that when we ignore God's word, it's our own funeral. We're toast. We're the ones who suffer. Today we're going to be sobered again by a very strange passage in God's word. And we're going to be sobered by this very strange image. The skeleton at the feast is you. What, I mean, what do I mean when I say that the skeleton at the feast is you? I get that from something that Frederick Beekner said. He said this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back in many ways It is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Though Frederick Buechner is talking about anger and how anger will eat away at you until all that you are is a skeleton, the same thing can really be said for any sin. Bitterness, lust, Worry, pride, you name it. Whatever pet sin that we coddle will eventually eat us up. Our darling sins are a cancer that spreads far and wide in our hearts. And so what's the cure? It's the gospel. What's the cure? It's Jesus. What's the cure? It's the word made flesh. It's the word of God. When we ignore God's word, when we ignore Jesus, it's our funeral, not his. When we lick our wounds and smack our lips over sin, whatever it is, we are feasting on ourselves. We are wolfing down ourselves. We are eating ourselves up, picking ourselves clean like a chicken leg down to the bone. Nothing left. The skeleton at the feast is us. And that's what we'll see in the back half of 1 Kings 20. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 20. The whole chapter forms this really large unit and it should be preached in one sitting, in one sermon, but because we are limited by the clock, I broke it up into two parts because it's a very long chapter. 
Last week, if you recall, we saw the amazing, vulgar, offensive grace of God that came to the dirty, rotten, scoundrel King Ahab, king of Israel. We saw that God's grace is vulgar, that it amazes as it offends. We saw that God's grace pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. We saw that God's grace hikes up its robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin, and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. We saw that grace is not cheap. It's free. And as such, it will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. We saw that grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. And in this section today on the back half of 1 Kings 20, we'll be reminded that we desperately need God's grace as it comes to us in His Word. And if we don't listen to God's Word, we're foolish. We're idiots. We're nincompoops. So all that stuff about grace that we saw last week and that I just mentioned, all of that is true. But that doesn't mean we can live recklessly without consequences. Besides, why would we want to ignore God? Why would we want to stiff arm the Holy Spirit? He's been so good to us. He's been nothing but good to us. In the Bible, God has revealed himself to us. Who he is, what he's like. He has revealed his heart to us. In the Bible, he has laid a feast before us. Page after page after page, we see God's heart. And if we ignore his word, and we feast on our grudges, and we feast on our anger, and we feast on our bitterness, and we feast on our lust, then the skeletons at the feast are us. Picked clean like a chicken leg by us and by our sin. And who wants that? I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. So let's humble ourselves at the beginning of this sermon and let's be open to God's word. Now you might not get goosebumps when you read these verses because there's a bunch of military and fighting going back and forth. I mean, there is this part about how this guy disobeys God and he gets eaten by a lion. That's kind of exciting. But you just might end up keeping yourself from total disaster if you listen to 1 Kings 20. So it's worth paying attention today. Grace is real, and grace is free, but it doesn't remove the consequences of our sin. I want to read a few quotes that tie into this chapter that I read earlier in 1 Kings. Ray Ortland said, If we are distracted from real-time connection with the mercies of God so that our hearts grow cold and our mouths become reckless and our eyes wayward and our feet wandering, We are only one misstep away from life-shattering catastrophe. We do not have to give ourselves to raw evil to end up there. 
We only have to unguard our hearts. We only have to stop being vigilant. Every one of us is always five minutes away from total disaster. But if we are receiving by faith the outpouring of Christ's love in constant supply from his throne of grace, we cannot lose our way. Jacob Smith said, We are all three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline, and most of us are already on day two. We're five minutes away from total disaster, ruining our lives. We're all three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline, and some of us are already on day two. And if you're here today and you're already on day two, listen to Jesus today. Be open to his word. Don't stiff arm him. Don't let your heart get cold. You might really mess up your life or the life of your family. And I don't want that for you or me. Who woke up this morning and thought, I hope I totally ruined my life today? (laughs) Nobody did. But that's exactly what we'll see with King Ahab. He's three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline, and he is already on day two. And since the devil does not want us to read God's word this morning, since it ticks him off, let's tick him off and let's read God's word. 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 23, hear the word of the Lord. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And Ben-Hadad listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to Ahab, the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then, on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Now recall from what we saw last week that King Ahab defeated the Syrians, but Ben-Hadad, the very drunk king of Syria, escaped on horseback. Remember we saw last week, Ben-Hadad is drinking all the time. So the drunk king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, escaped on horseback. Well now in verse 23, we get a a glimpse of life back in defeated Ben-Hadad's camp. We get to eavesdrop on this top-secret military meeting. The servants of Ben-Hadad come to the conclusion that the reason they lost the battle at Samaria against Ahab is because the Israelites' God, Yahweh, must have been a God of the hills. 
They reasoned that Yahweh must have had home field advantage in the hills. But if we can fight them in the plains, then we'll defeat them. We lost the battle because we were fighting Yahweh in his own stadium. You see, in the ancient Near East, people believed that the gods lived in certain areas and they would be stronger if they did have home field advantage. So Ben-Hadad listened to his advisors and he prepared for round number two against King Ahab. And so the Syrians went home to prepare for WrestleMania II in the spring. And so the battle was set. WrestleMania II at Aphek. King Ahab the Horrible versus Bruiser Ben-Hadad. Only on pay-per-view. But if you look closely in verse 27, it doesn't seem like a fair fight. It describes the armies this way. Israel was like two little flocks of goats. And Syria, they filled the entire country. So you've got two little flocks of goats taking on the whole country of wolves. But then verse 28 tells us, for the third time now in this story, that a prophet came near to King Ahab. We saw it last week in verse 13 and in verse 22. This is now the third time that the word of the Lord has come to this dirty, rotten scoundrel, King Ahab. And the prophet tells Ahab that because the Syrians think that Yahweh was a better fighter in the hills and he won't be in the plains, then Yahweh is going to deliver them into Ahab's hand. And that's exactly what happened. We read that for seven days they had a stare-down contest and then Israel would strike down 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. 27,000 Syrians would run away to Aphek and then the city walls would fall on them. And so Israel wins and King Ahab the Horrible is the new world heavyweight champion and he doesn't deserve a drop of it. He doesn't deserve this victory. His heart is hardened to the Lord. But that's how grace rolls, right? It's amazing. Or maybe we should say it's offensive. But we also see vintage Yahweh here. Give Yahweh, the Lord, an army that looks like two little goats and send him to war against an army that fills the whole countryside. And guess what? Yahweh will kill 100,000 on the battlefield and then cause a city wall to fall down and kill the other 27,000. Listen, Jesus does not mind being perceived as the underdog. He doesn't mind if people bet on his enemies. He doesn't mind being perceived as the underdog. In your life, no matter what's happening right now, and you're wondering, what's God going to do? God's not stressed out. He doesn't mind being perceived as the underdog. This is just vintage Yahweh. But this victory, all due to God's amazing grace, has a purpose. Look at verse 28. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. More grace for Ahab. He doesn't deserve it. 
But notice the phrase, you shall know. In Hebrew here, it's a plural. It's a second masculine plural. This same phrase appears back in verse 13 too, but in verse 13, it's a singular. It's a second masculine singular. So God's grace was given to Ahab so that he himself would personally know that the Lord was in control. That's verse 13. But now here, it's second masculine plural. It's given so that the nation of Israel would know that the Lord was in control. But the knowing here was not that they would know that Yahweh was the true God. That happened back in chapter 18 on top of Mount Carmel, if you remember that story. Here, the knowing is different. Here, the Lord wants King Ahab and he wants the nation of Israel to know that when I do what I have predicted then you will have clear evidence that I, Yahweh, and no other have acted in grace or judgment, as the case may be, and that you are accountable for responding appropriately. Yahweh wants Ahab and the nation to get it. The Lord wants them to to get it. He has brought judgment on Ben-Hadad and he has shown grace to King Ahab and to Israel and now he wants them to respond appropriately. But they don't. They don't connect the dots as we'll see in a moment. Ben-Hadad escapes yet again. Somehow this drunk king keeps escaping. But then his servants tell him that they've heard that the Israelites have merciful kings. And so his servants dress up in these servant outfits and they go to speak to King Ahab. Look in the middle of verse 30. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their weights and put, uh, waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And Ahab said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it, uh, took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then Ahab said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him. And he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to Ahab, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with Ben-Hadad and let him go. So Ben-Hadad's servants go beg for mercy. And once they mention that Ben-Hadad is still alive, Ahab calls him his brother. Is my brother still alive? Which the servants see as a cue to let Ben-Hadad know that it's now safe for him to come out of hiding. Then Ben-Hadad joins Ahab in his chariot, and Ben-Hadad agrees to restore every city that his father took from Israel. And then Ahab agrees to let Ben-Hadad go on these terms. But Ahab was supposed to kill Ben-Hadad, per the prophet back in verse 13, but instead he let him go. Ahab did not obey the word of the Lord. And so what does God do? Once again, God sends a prophet to Ahab. The prophet 
represented the Lord. The prophet was the mouthpiece of the Lord. The prophet was the word of the Lord to his people. So God, once again, sends his word to King Ahab. Are you starting to get the picture that the Lord is serious about his word? He keeps sending prophet after prophet after prophet, word of the Lord after word of the Lord after word of the Lord, and King Ahab should have made the connection that Yahweh is serious about his word. Ahab should have connected the dots that the prophet was telling him, that if he ignores God's word, then the skeleton at the feast is you, King Ahab. Ahab didn't see that he was just devouring himself by disobeying God's word. Ahab was turned in upon himself and devouring his own life. So understand this. When we try to do life our way, when we think, I'm smarter than Jesus, I'm wiser than God. I know his word says this, but, but this is what I feel. This is what I think. This is what culture is telling me. When we try to do life our way, apart from God's word, we will fragment. We will break apart. It's kind of like trying to put together a kid's toy on Christmas morning and you throw away the instructions and you think, I can do this. I don't need the instructions. And then six hours later, you're frustrated and you're trying to put together this dollhouse and you can't because you despise the instructions. The Christian life boils down to this. Will we listen to God? Will we listen to God's word? Will we humble ourselves under God's wisdom? See, it's out of his sheer kindness that God has revealed himself through his word. He's given us very clear guidance. It's straightforward. It's direct. There's no fine print. The truth is, we will humble ourselves under something. Either the wisdom of God as revealed in Scripture, or the false wisdom of our own heart, or the false wisdom of our culture. But we will humble ourselves under something. And if we pick the wrong thing to submit to, then we will end up devouring ourselves. Do we treasure his wisdom? Do we treasure his word? Do we treasure his detailed instructions? Or do we roll our eyes at Jesus like we might do on Christmas morning with the instructions to a dollhouse and just think, I can do this? Or do we roll our eyes at Jesus? Instead of devouring ourselves, why not enjoy God? Doesn't that sound better? Our mission here is that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Doesn't that sound better? Instead of fighting God, resisting God, instead saying, I'm just going to take him at his word and enjoy him. Well, one of the primary means to glorifying and enjoying God is through his word. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism clearly states in questions one and two. Question one says, what is the chief end of man? 
Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You probably wonder where we got our mission statement from. There you go. Thank you, Westminster Divines in the 1600s. Question two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? Answer, the Word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Do you want to glorify God? If you're a Christian, I hope that's the heartbeat of your life. Do you want to enjoy Him? He makes it so clear for us how to do that in His Word. Sinclair Ferguson said, There is nothing more Satan seems to hate than God's children enjoying being God's children. There's nothing more than the devil hates than when you enjoy being God's child. When you wake up in the morning and you say, I have been adopted into his family because of the work of his son. I am forgiven. I am free. I'm just going to enjoy him this morning. Listen, Do you want to make the devil angry? Enjoy being God's child. Open this book. Study this book. Memorize this book. Meditate upon this book. Hear this word preached every Sabbath and enjoy being God's child. And in the process, number one, you'll glorify God. And number two, you'll tick the devil off. Don't you want to tick the devil off? I do. You know why? I don't like him. He's our enemy. And he pesters me all the time. So why does he always get to do stuff to me and I can't do anything to him? So I'm going to tick him off. I'm going to enjoy being God's child. The alternative is what? To devour yourself and make Satan happy. So of the two, glorify God Enjoy him, make the devil angry, or devour yourself, waste away, and make the devil happy. I'm going with option one. Listen, the devil does not want you to hear the words in this book. The devil does not want you to open up God's word. He doesn't want you to read it. He doesn't want you to have, have you hear it preached Here on Sunday morning, you know, when the gospel goes out from this pulpit, not because of me, not because of any other preacher that's here, but when the gospel, when God's word is expounded from this pulpit, it goes out with power. Kind of like the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember when they take the lid off the Ark of the Covenant and all that power goes out except your faces aren't melting and blowing up? Maybe your sin is, but it's power going out. When you open it up, it's power. When you open up God's word to read it, like hearing Jesus' words at the end of his life on John, in John 19, he says, it is finished. The devil doesn't want you to read those words. It is finished. The devil doesn't want you to read Romans 8.1, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil doesn't want you to read Galatians 2.20, which says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. 
devil doesn't want you to read Hebrews 8, which says that Jesus can't remember your sins. And the devil doesn't want you to show up here on Sunday morning and hear God's word preached. And so that's why he says on Sunday morning, hey, Pismo Beach, sunrise, beach, waves, sand, Old West cinnamon rolls, Splash Cafe, because he doesn't want you here. That's why he says we've got great hills that you can hike on the Central Coast. It'd be a great day tomorrow. You don't need church. Go hiking. That's why he tells you, hey, your kids have a game. Let's put them in the tournament. They don't need to be here. Listen. I know he's whispering to you, and I know your coaches are telling you about your kids and your grandkids. If your kid's there, we're not going to win the championship. We need him. Listen, your kid's going to get a trophy no matter what, right? Everybody gets a trophy. If your kid comes to church, they're getting the trophy no matter what, whether they win or lose the tournament. If your kid comes to church, he's going to hear about Jesus And his heart is going to get connected with the gospel, which Paul says in Romans 1 is the power of God. And what your kid needs more than another trophy in his bedroom is the power of the gospel and his heart connected to it. Now, I say all this not to shame or condemn anyone, but I'm your pastor, I'm your shepherd, I care for you. You need to be here. Your children need to be here. Your grandchildren need to be here because this is what your heart was made for. Or maybe for you, it's lawn bowling. You know, you can do lawn bowling in Santa Maria. Maybe that's what's whispering to you on a Sunday morning. Go lawn bowling. The devil wants you to devour yourself. The devil wants you to skip church so you can eat away at yourself because the devil hates you. And because the devil hates you, he would rather see you devour yourself than devour God's word. King Ahab didn't see that he was just devouring himself by disobeying God's word and not killing Ben-Hadad. And that's exactly what another man will do next too, except this guy will leave all of the devouring to a lion. A lion will glorify and enjoy God as it eats this guy for lunch. Look at verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow At the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then the prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for King Ahab by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then Ahab, the king of Israel, said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then the prophet hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. 
And the prophet said to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And Ahab, the king of Israel, went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. So the prophet wants someone to cut him with a sword. The prophet wants somebody to just take a sword and start whacking him a few times. Now, I know this sounds like the prophet of God must have stumbled across Ben-Hadad's Miller Light stash, right? Remember, Ben-Hadad was always drinking. It sounds like the prophet has been drinking one too many beers. I mean, who would come up with the idea to have someone whack you with a sword? Has this prophet been doing some day drinking? Who comes up with the idea to invite someone to slice you with a sword? It's the Lord. That's who. God came up with this idea. Notice that the man in verse 35 asked someone to strike him at the command of the Lord. This was the Lord's idea. We see the stress yet again on God's word. But sit back and see where this strange story is going. The man did not obey the voice of the Lord and strike the prophet of God, so the prophet told him that a lion would soon devour him. Why? Verse 36 tells us, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. It was this guy's funeral for not obeying the command of the Lord. And now a lion is glorifying and enjoying God because this man disobeyed. And so after the man is mauled by a lion, the prophet finds another man who does indeed strike him with the sword. And then the prophet covers his face and disguises himself and waits by the side of the road for King Ahab to show up. And when Ahab finally pulls up, the prophet tells him, I was out in the midst of the battle and a soldier brought a prisoner to me and told me to guard him. And he told me if I let him escape, then I'd be killed or owe him money. Well, I was busy and the prisoner ran away. Then King Ahab told the disguised prophet, you lost the prisoner, now you got to pay. And then the disguised prophet reveals himself and Ahab recognizes him and the prophet tells him, thus says the Lord, because you let Ben-Hadad go, I'm going to take your life. It's a strange passage. It's weird, but it's all an acted parable to remind Ahab that he did not take God's word seriously. The Lord had told Ahab earlier in the chapter that Ben-Hadad was to be delivered into his hand, obviously to be killed. And King Ahab did not obey. He let Ben-Hadad go. But why the wounding of the prophet? Why that weirdness? Why was he so desperate to get someone to cut him open with the sword and bleed out all over the place? Here's why. To show Ahab what he could expect in the future. Ahab would be wounded soon, just like the prophet. It was a parable acted out before Ahab's eyes. And how does Ahab respond to God's word? How does the chapter end? Look at verse 43. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Vexed could be translated as bitter, stubborn, rebellious. Sullen could be translated as angry. Ahab is bitter and angry with God. Someone needed to remind King Ahab of what Frederick Beekner said. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, 
to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. When any of us stiff-arm Jesus and we ignore God's very clear commands in Scripture and we want to rule our lives according to what we think and what we feel or what culture is telling us, and we're bitter and angry with God, and we refuse to repent and return to the Lord. In those moments, we need someone like Frederick Beekner or an Old Testament prophet who is bleeding and bandaged to tell us that the skeleton at the feast is you. We must be very careful when we get to that place where we feel safe Ignoring God's very clear word. That's a dangerous place to be. Let's not go there. Let's not stiff arm Jesus. Let's not ignore him. We don't want to do that today. We want to be open to what God has to say to us in his word. And remember, when we open up God's word, he is opening his heart to us. Imagine every time you open the Bible, think, I'm opening up God's heart. Maybe get your Bible, and with a black Sharpie, just write God's heart on the front, so that you know every single time you open the Bible, God is opening up his heart to you. He is mercifully, in his kindness, telling you what he is like. He's pulling back the curtain on his heart and saying, this is what I'm like. How is that a bad thing? Let's close with something that Puritan Isaac Ambrose said. He said, when Christians go to the preaching, they go as one goes to hear the news of a friend. When they go to pray, they go to talk with a friend. When they go to read the scriptures, they go to read a letter from a friend. When they go to receive the supper, they go to sup with a friend. They look upon duties and ordinances as those things whereby they do with God and Christ and therefore these labors are precious and sweet. When you pick up the Bible, you're reading a letter from a friend, a dear friend who loves you so much that he died for you, a dear friend who laid down his life for your sins. What a friend! When you hear a sermon, you're listening to a friend, a dear friend who loves you unconditionally. When you come to the Lord's table, you're coming to eat with a friend, a dear friend who is opening his heart to you in his word. These labors are precious and sweet. When we open up God's word, he is opening his heart to us. And so if you ever find yourself not wanting to read God's word, And who hasn't been there? Let's be honest. When you find yourself at that place, remind yourself, when I open up God's word, he's actually opening his heart up to me. 
is telling you what he is like, how he is holy and powerful and sovereign and wise and kind and merciful and caring and loving and generous. Open this book and see God open his heart to you. And so all the commandments and all of those long and never seem to end genealogies and all of the hard to pronounce names and all the cities and the countries that you can't locate on a map and all of the repetition and all of the poetry and all of the songs and all of the strange passages where a man refuses to whack a prophet with a sword so he gets eaten by a lion. All of that is God opening his heart to you. Open this book and see God open his heart to you. It's precious and sweet. 1 Kings 20 is telling us that Jesus is after nothing less than your wants and your loves and your longings and your heart. The question is, will we humble ourselves and listen? Will we take God up on this two-way relationship of love? Let's do that this year as a church. Will we respond to his love with love? Will we let him feed our souls with the gospel of his son? Let's do that as a family this year, as a church family. Will we enjoy this dynamic two-way relationship with the God who made us and knows everything about us? Will we allow God to talk to us about our sin and our guilt and our weakness and our blindness? Will we allow the Holy Spirit to show us from God's word that we are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need? Freedom comes when we do. We show that we are friends with God when we let his word do its work in our lives. So let's not be skeletons this year. Let's not be a church full of skeletons who have been picked clean down to the bone like a chicken leg. Let's be friends with God. Let's get to the end of 2020 and look back and not see a church full of skeletons. Let's look back and say that we deepened our friendship with Jesus and with one another. Let's glorify and enjoy God in 2020. Jesus is saying to you today, He's saying to all of us, I mean, hear him right now from Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, which was our call to worship this morning and our scripture reading. Hear Jesus saying this to you today. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without a price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you hungry? Are you flat broke? All you have to do is come. Respond to his invitation. Let's listen to him today. And we will find ourselves delighting in all that he is for us in the gospel. Let's take him up on his offer this morning. What do you say? Let's pray. Jesus, we are amazed at your kindness and your goodness, your grace that's amazing.
comes to people that don't deserve a drop of it. And it's offensive. It bothers us, Jesus, that you're so gracious to people that we don't like. You're gracious to us. We admit we're sinners. So we confess our sins and say, forgive us. We come empty and broke, thirsty and hungry. Thank you for the free invitation to come and drink and be filled, to come and eat and be filled. And so Jesus, now by the power of your spirit, would you feed us with the hope of the gospel so that you would be glorified in our lives and that we would enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen.